0: is teaching the golden rule, American history and practical man, you study him hard, hoping to pass, working your fingers right down to the bone, and the guy behind you won't leave you alone, ring, ring
1: goes the bell, now back to talk out of the school, I'ma say Alessia,
0: Hello to the Tribe of Love, listening to today's broadcast of Talk Out of School. Bienvenidos a todos, bienvenidos mi familia. Welcome my family WBAI listeners. My name is Daniel Alisea. My pronouns are he and his, and I am the proud son of Manny and Alma. And I welcome you today to another episode of Talk Out of School. I'm coming to you once more from WBAI listener-sponsored, locally-controlled, non-commercial radio in New York City. We are found on 99.5 FM on your radio dial. This is a Pacifica radio station. And we are also being live-streamed on WBAI.org. At Talk Out of School, we focus on the issues affecting public schools and public education here in New York City, on the state level, and nationally. And if you would like to download a podcast of this episode later, you can find us on the WBAI archives or on Apple or Spotify. Today, we have a very special and important program I am being joined by Gia Lee. She is a New York City public school educator and a union organizer. And she is also joined by three early childhood educators, Deandra, Michelle, and Lauren. And they're going to tell us about the crisis that currently early childhood programs are experiencing here in New York City public schools. Gia Lee is an elementary special education teacher and is also on the steering committee of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators more the Social Justice Caucus within the UFT. She is a labor organizer and has been a chapter leader at her school. DeAndra is a 23-year-old educator. She is currently an instructional coordinator. For early childhood programs in Districts 16 and 19. Michelle has been an early childhood social worker for 19 years. She has been in District 14 with the Division of Early Childhood Education, or D.E.C.E., for the last nine years. Lauren has operated early childhood programs in Queens for the past 15 years and she founded and currently runs the Q Studio Lab in Sunnyside, Queens that houses a 3K and 4K program. I'm on the line with Gia Lee. I'm also on the line with early childhood educators and service providers, Lauren, Michelle, and DeAndra. Welcome to Talk Out of School.
2: Hi, thanks for having us.
0: If you can share with our listeners, um, Lauren, Michelle, and DeAndra, And Gia, a little bit about your role in our New York City public schools, especially those that are servicing uh, within the Division of Early Childhood Education.
3: Instructional coordinators in DECE we support all of the needs of students in specialized programs. Um, Sometimes people call us ICs. So ICs um, support public schools, uh, 3K and pre-K programs, uh, pre-K centers, CBOs that have birth through pre-K um, uh, programs. We support uh, Muslim schools, yeshiva schools, Catholic schools um, program, Head Start programs, and family in-home daycare uh, programs. We also have Dual language IC specialists, they support programs, especially the youngest um, emergent multilingual learners, especially new migrant learners are coming into programs. And we also have inclusion IC specialists who also support um, the inclusivity of students with special needs all across the city. Instructional coordinators go in and we actually support leaders, teachers, and sometimes we speak with parents, but mostly we support the instruction that's taking place within the classroom. So we do a lot of uh, observations, um, sitting down and doing reflective conversations with teachers and leaders about the practices that are taking place within the classroom. Uh, But mainly our, our focus is to ensure that teaching practices and activities are developmentally appropriate for babies through four-year-olds. So um, that's the main, main role of an IC is just ensuring developmentally appropriate practices are being
2: done within.
0: So Michelle, your role within the DECE as a, a social worker,
2: so while DeAndra and instructional coordinators focus on the academic component, um, we focus on the emotionally um, on emotionally responsive practices on um, social emotional development, positive behavior supports. Um, we work with the children in the classroom, the teachers, the administrators, families. Um, Sometimes other supports get staff in the school that uh, work with the classrooms like cluster teachers. Um, And our work previously has really been focused on, like Deandra said, building capacity within the schools, helping the teachers and administrators grow and reflect about their practices. Um, I think that all of us can always you know, there's always constant room for improvement and we try to meet the teachers where they are and help them grow as professionals. Um, and I look at it as we're, we're helping on a macro level because the practices that we help, um, support teachers around are things that they can take into their classroom for years to come. So we also do things like parent workshops and professional development. Um, But our our role is really just to to help create an emotionally responsive classroom so that children feel seen and heard. Um, One of the things we talk about constantly is safe, nurturing and predictable environments, because that's how children thrive. And particularly in the last several years, trauma has been an incredibly huge issue. And people think that because children are small, it doesn't affect them when in fact, it's the opposite. It affects them and they don't usually have the words to express it and cope with it in healthy ways. And that's part of our role.
0: Lauren, your, your role as a site coordinator within the DECE?
1: Well. I actually started um <laughs> I started the Q Studio Lab um in our community in 2016. Um but prior to that I ran other another program called Amazing Magic Beans in our community. And I'm I'm also representing there are a lot of us who are small business owners who are women and uh, particularly women of color who this is how they support the community and their families at the same time. So my role is to to run the program, to make it so that when families come in, they have someone to talk to, they know what we do in the program. I work with teachers, I work with our education directors and make sure that the communication pathways and services are being provided and communicated to families. So families know what they're getting. Teachers get the supports they need. Education directors know how to work with DOE also and provide our ICs and our social workers with the information they need to support us and for us to also share what we're finding is working in our classrooms um, with our ICs and with our social workers. So then that can be shared with other programs. So we have worked in collaboration in many ways. with our own program and then with others in our community. So our main role, I mean my role is to talk to the parents. I always say, you know, when you're running a program, so much of your time is supporting parents to know they can they have a community. It's they're not in this alone. Raising children is hard. And no one's supposed to know how to do it by themselves, and no one can do it by themselves. So our center also offers support systems in terms of, um, you know, programs for parents so that they can join by Zoom while they're cooking dinner and get information at the same time. Um, they can schedule meetings with us to talk about difficulties in the family that are happening. Um, We are the providers are the people who have to do, you know, we do the... I do the financial budgets with the department of education but then in the next hour i'm going to sit with a family who's in the middle of a divorce and their family you know their children need additional supports that they can't afford outside of the pre-k or 3k program and what do we do so we connect them to other programs Um, we end up being the hub for how parents don't get lost in a giant city um, because they get the support through us and through relationships that we work really hard to foster so that they get what they need in our communities.
0: Such imp- important and vital work. Gia, um, can you tell our listeners um, a little bit about yourself, your role in New York City Schools, and how you got connected to Lauren, Michelle, and Deandra?
4: Yeah, thank you again, Daniel, for hosting us, because this is such an important, vital issue for New York City. Um, I'm a New York City public school teacher. I'm a special education teacher. This is my 23rd year. I just happened to be on sabbatical. Um, And I'm also a member of the movement of Ranking File Educators, the Social Justice Caucus within the United Federation of Teachers. And. I got involved because in September, right before school started, I got a phone call um, you know, and I'll just provide a little context for for the situation here. I learned that they're close to about three to 350 instructional coordinators and social workers in New York City. And how they're um, divided is by region. So the Queens has an office. Uh, Manhattan North and South have an office. Staten Island, Manhattan. I know they're kind of divided between two um, divisions, upper and lower, and then the Bronx. And through these regional offices they support uh, a couple thousand early childhood programs across the city and this is not just you know like oh this program was in existence for a few years some of them have been around for decades doing this work and um, for folks who don't know universal pre-k 3k programs are were a model you know, it's the ideal situation to be able to provide free childcare, and it's you know providing uh, developmentally appropriate, emotionally supportive community spaces in the largest school district in the country. Right? People came from all over to see this model of universal childcare, and it's summarily being dismantled by the current administration. So, you know, I had to put on my organizing hat for this and really look at, wow, these are, you know, the instructional coordinators and um, social workers are all part of our union, the United Federation of Teachers, and their positions were being, quote unquote, eliminated. They were given, sent access letters in the first to second week of September, and when people were confused and asked, like, what is going on here, um, answers needed from our union leadership, they were ignored at first. And they were told, you know, this is a new administration, this happens, management is, you know, they, this happens all the time, they're allowed to do this. However, they weren't understanding the very huge impact, the reverberating impact that this was happening. As we were doing, you know, like some organizing work, trying to out, do outreach and pushing back and saying, hold up, you are el- removing essential services and supports from these programs. We started speaking to site program directors and found out that the city was not honoring contracts and that many of the sites, you know, um, were literally not paid their contract for months we taking out second mortgages, loans, literally uh, dipping into savings that they had to put food on their own table, but then make payroll, pay rent to provide childcare for working families who depend on these programs. So, if you can imagine, you know, my child is 19 years old, but I remember paying nearly a month's rent worth put my child in daycare so that I could go to work. These are essential and with the rising inflation, um, cost of rent and the cost of living in the city, removing these essential services is a huge blow to families just trying to get back on their feet while we were in lockdown and during this pandemic. So I find that without the voices of, you know, majority working women, women of color, like Lauren described, um, this was going to have a detrimental impact. And so that's why we started organizing pushing back. And it's it feels silent, but it's been such a huge wave um in keeping our city
1: going. I so, want to jump in on that real fast if I can, which is, you know, I feel like um our families have all faced so much as as I think um DeAndra and Michelle were talking about everybody's still in a traumatic place. We have kids who have delays in speech and have delays in socialization because they weren't brought out to be in a social situation for two years. And so these centers are like, this is the place where the for the first time a family's hearing, you know, it might be good for your child to be evaluated or it might be good for you to turn off the iPad and just have a conversation with them. Not to any fault of a parent or a circumstances this is the life we've all been in for two years, um, and then for centers to have made it through this pandemic, and to take a breath for a second and say, "Okay, I can give services now, without worrying about my rent," and then suddenly to go through September no payment, October no payment, for us to be in February of an academic year and have probably about 65 to 70% of providers in the city of New York, not having their contracts honored, not being paid for services so that this program is running on the backs of small business owners, on the backs of nonprofits that are barely making it without the payments from the city.
0: So a little bit deeper, I want to, I want to get more on a, a, a micro level with uh, Michelle and Deandre, Can you walk us through these letters in September, um, what that was like, what you heard, and then how is this impacting the students and families that you have serviced and how is it impacting you?
2: Um, so the, I believe it was the day before school started or two days before school started, there was a meeting, a mandatory meeting and they came on and it was a five-minute meeting, I think. And basically, they just told us we were all excessed. There was going to be a restructuring. More details would follow. And we were not to report to any schools. If any of our schools contacted us, we were to tell our supervisors and not respond. So we were all sitting in the offices for about three weeks, just doing nothing. Um, and restructuring, it's not that restructuring and changes haven't happened in our division in the past. Um, and I think a lot of people thought initially that it would come down to a seniority issue. And one of the conversations um, we had in our office, particularly, was that those of us that were tenured felt that it was our job to protect those of the colleagues that were not tenured. And, and we said, you know, we'll, we'll stand in front of you. We'll be the ones that that start off, um, you know, fighting back, and you're welcome to stand next to us, but we don't expect that. It's our job to protect you. So we just sat there for for weeks with we weren't allowed to do anything. We weren't fully accessed in the system, and and then I think what happened was all of a sudden, because we were unable to respond they started getting all these 311 calls with problems because the beginning of the year is always the most challenging. Children are coming in. Some of them had never been to school before. There's a huge amount of separation anxiety for parents that had, you know, their children had really never been, as Lauren said, outside before. Um, This was a huge change. So it was traumatic, not only for the children, but the parents. And usually there's, you know, a couple children that have difficulties. and But this year it wasn't. We, we weren't seeing like one or two children with problems. We were seeing like 10 or 11 children in a classroom that were having a, a huge amount of difficulty. And for anybody that has children or has worked with children, you know how incredibly hard that is, particularly with the younger children, the three-year-olds. Um, and we weren't able to support. And that's something that Deandra and I and our colleagues usually go in right away, and we'll be there, you know all day if we need to, supporting the teacher, supporting the assistant teacher, supporting the children and the families. Um, and then, after all these three one one calls, I think started coming in and all these complaints started coming in about where's my social worker, where's my IC, then we were told we were allowed to go back. However, it was on, um, I believe she said something like, we were there to meet the immediate needs during this time of transition. We had no idea what this transition looked like and everything just became crisis management, which was very different than how we had um, operated previously. I've, I've worked for the Division of Early Childhood since 2014. We have never focused solely on a crisis intervention model. It's always been very proactive, preventative, and trying to support the teachers. And now it, it just felt like putting out fires. Um, one of my colleagues described it as unrelenting emotional whiplash, and I I think that's that's really accurate. Um, we didn't know from day to day, week to week, if we were going to have a job. And um, and I know that I can speak for Deandra and myself and most of my colleagues. <laughs> We absolutely love what we do. We we take a huge amount of pride in it. it. It's something that we chose to do, and we love it. And to tell us that that we're not, basically, we're not, you know, very effective at our jobs, which was a comment that had been made by our deputy chancellor, was frankly hurtful and insulting. <sighs>
0: Okay, you, Michelle. Deandra? Um.
2: Okay,
3: Michelle. Um, have you ever had um, a job um, that you passionately love, and then someone who's a complete stranger, who's now like your new boss, said you don't have this job, but you do have this job, but you kind of sort of can still do your job. Um, as if you, you know, the way you used to do it before. That's very traumatizing. I don't know any single person in this world who can, you know, sit comfortably, um, live a comfortable life, feel stress free and receive these traumatic news. And it's usually on a Friday, like every Friday, um, almost when the day is about to end, um, our week has already been stressful enough because we weren't being communicated to. Um, the lines of communication definitely broke down. Like from the beginning of the school year, we were, Michelle was absolutely correct. For three weeks, we were sitting there. And then it made it, it made an appearance as if the IC, ICs and social workers abandoned their sites. And what and the message that didn't get out to leaders and site directors and even um, superintendents was that we were told not to reach out. We were told not to go to sites. Like that message never, never got out. And we couldn't speak on it either, you know, contacting our sites, we would have, you know, we would have been insubordinate and got in even more trouble. I'm probably going to get in trouble just talking on this radio station today. But, you know, um, what's right is right. And I feel like we are here for a right cause. And that causes children and families of the communities that we support. But with that being said, it was always this constant trauma and the leadership would never want to meet with us. I've never, I've worked in DECE for a number of years, but I've never worked in DECE with the leader at the top, never refused to meet or even to speak with us. At the beginning of the year, um, we had Josh, he would come to meetings and talk to us and and share with us his vision for the year. I mean, I miss those, miss those times where, you know, where we, we knew the vision um, of the leadership at the top. This year, I have no idea what the vision is. I just know that, um, as an IC and, and I know Michelle as a social worker, we go in and doing the job that we know that, that is needed to be done, which is supporting, um, leaders, teachers, and families and students. Like, that's what we know to do. And we show up there 100% uh, doing that work. But it was constant trauma at, at on Fridays at three something. And it's always, the. it was never from the top. It, the message was never from the top. It was always like a meeting being called on teams. And it's and it's, it's our supervisor's interpretation of what they think the leadership at the top is saying. But it was, a never, it was never a clear message and never a clear vision. And then to be told that you're excess, but you're not excess. So it's like you don't have your job. You could kind of go look for a job, but you still can't look for another job. I mean, what person would be comfortable with with doing that? But ICs and social workers, we are still here and we are sticking it out because we know the bigger picture and the bigger picture is supporting the communities that we serve. And it's been traumatizing for um for our own personal families where you come home and your loved one or your significant other is saying, well, so are you guys, do you guys still have a job? And we're like, yeah, I kinda sorta, you know, for me to go in and tell a site like I may be back or I may not be back, I'm really not sure. That wasn't comfortable for a lot of the leaders that I support. To hear and receive that. And they would always say, Oh, Miss Deonja, I, I I really hope, I'm praying that that I get to see you um, in a few weeks. One leader actually held my hands and prayed for me um, because she she just couldn't believe what was happening um, to ICs and social workers across the city. She literally held my hands and prayed for me. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was like um, this year.
0: You're listening to Talk at a School on WBAI New York. Orin, how how has this impacted um, folks at at Q Studio um, yourself as well?
1: Well, to build on DeAndra's point, we just got a message from RIC saying, well, we're not going to be there not really sure when or how and this year particularly when we're looking at the needs and trauma of the kids and families and what they've been through for the last three years really two and a half school years Um, for me it was just we had just figured out we felt like how to give what we knew was working to our IC so she could share it and also then work with her on what we were doing. Um, And then some of us were, I was talking to some other directors, ICs would come in and we hadn't been given budget. So because we had no money coming in, purchasing the supplies that are needed to make those classrooms developmentally appropriate was impossible for a lot of sites. Um, We, you know, we run a program that is extremely creative and, um, Dynamic, And we uh, called upon a lot of parents for help and work. But I have to say that was also really frustrating because I felt like we couldn't show what we knew how to do. Um, And this actually this started last year. Right. So in 2022, we were having trouble getting budget on time. But then this year it just exploded into a massive um, problem across the city that I'd never seen in my 10 years of running a DOE program. Um, So for me personally, the part that's hard is when you're running a program and you want to be so present to the people who both work for me and who are the parents and families, like my love is helping the parents or helping the teachers find the way to connect to that child, getting them to come into the room. And not be scared or know that they're going to be nurtured and loved in that classroom and my preoccupation always and still is a lot of the time are we going to get the money in time to make payroll are we going to be able do we have to say to our landlord i know you've worked with us for so long but um i need another two weeks before we can pay so it makes my job you know, and then not to have the stability from DOE, not to have the transparency, as was being talked about, Um, that we didn't know what was happening. You know, it, this wasn't a matter of um a piece of pay, like we knew something needed to travel through a bureaucracy. Right. We didn't know what the problem was. So we had September hitting. We we're not having money hit. Um, you know, reliably yet we don't know when how that's going to work. We're being told the ICs and social workers. We don't know if they're going to come to site. So there's a lot of questioning of what's happening in pre-K and 3K. Can we rely on the program so we can support the families? And that has been an ongoing drumbeat. And for me personally, I didn't get into early childhood because. I thought I was going to make a lot of money. I didn't get into early childhood because I thought, um, you know, this would be work I could do for a little while. (laughs) You know, it's like I got into working with kids because that was where my heart is and was. And because my community needed it and we have fought for it and we've, you know, strived to do it. So we now serve 200 kids. And um and I get to see them walking down the street when they're six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And they still say, Hi, Miss Lauren. Hi, Miss Lauren. That's that's my heart. That's why I do this work. Um, but this dismantling is all I can call it, and I think Gia, I think you said that, of you can't take a program that actually the whole city runs on, and then say oh, if we just take, you know, the motor out and the tires off the car and the, you know, you'll still be able to drive, right? We'll still be able to operate. So my stress personally has been waking up in the morning going, how do I make sure we make payroll? I didn't spend my December break. I'm putting that in quotes, air quotes here. I didn't spend that break saying, oh, good, I'm just spending it with my family. I spent it spending time with my family. And then also saying, can we make sure we hit payroll January 5th? Who else can I talk to? And working all of that so that we could be in a position where we could continue serving the 200 families that we serve. So that, I mean, for me, that's the big thing is I just want to do the work. (laughs) Like, let me do the work that we love to do um, and that our families and communities need and not make it. It doesn't need to be stressful. It really doesn't. It's like pay the bill. Let the programs run and serve the community. Because if they don't, I mean, my big concern is we saw in the pandemic how much childcare was necessary for the economy of the entire city. And it's like the city has amnesia now. Like they've forgotten that, oh, people don't have a place to bring their child. They can't go to work. And I feel like that's totally forgotten somewhere. And it's not an exaggeration when we say 75% of programs are late receiving their payments across all five boroughs. This isn't just Queens. This isn't just Manhattan. This is everywhere. And, you know, directors are saying, I can't do this anymore. Just personally, I can't do it, you know. And, um, and I feel like I have to make a stand for what I believe is needed in our city. I love New York City and I love our community. Um, and I, it saddens me so deeply when I hear of programs that have been here for decades and they're closing because their deficit's too high. They can't take out any more loans that, by the way, have huge interest rates or they can't take out any more favors. They've gone through everyone who can give them money to make it work. And no program should have to do that. Everyone should be able to put their attention on children and families, not on, can I keep my lights on?
0: All of this sounds um, surreal and it's unconscionable. You have shown courage in in just speaking out today. And I want to thank you. I do want to talk about the fight to organize. I, I think there is a concerted, conscious assault and dismantling of public education that has been going on. But especially when we start looking at some of the other things that are going on. you We have a city that's sitting on a surplus of billions of dollars. We're not in austerity. Um, and so I, I maybe I'd get it if the city was trying to pay its bills, but we're on record su- uh, surplus here. Um, and then I look at some of the movement on a federal level, on a state level, city council talking about, we need to make sure there is universal um, childcare here in the city. And then you start to find out that corporations and privatizers are also stepping into the mix here, and so I think I think there's something there. Um, but before we t- talk about more about the why and some of the next steps, Gia, can you take us? You already started to touch on some of the organizing. There was a rally in November, and that's about all we've kind of heard. Can you tell us a little bit more about the organizing that's going on and making sure that we're fighting back here?
4: Yeah, thanks. So, you know, let's go back to um, September. We knew immediately that um, we needed to take some initial steps. And so what we did was we formulated, this is with the ICs and social workers, a letter, a letter to our union leadership to please investigate this. Please open your eyes to what is going on. And we demanded a meeting with them because all efforts to bring this issue up were being shut down initially um and we don't know why right i don't want to make any conjectures about the re- the reasoning or rationale we're in the the midst of a contract negotiation with a very difficult um mayor who is saying that we're headed towards a fiscal cliff which you just mentioned is false <laughs> um so We started with this letter and getting folks on board to sign it. And that's the part, you know, it's the organizing bits that people don't see publicly. They see like the rallies, they see those kinds of things. And then once we started to build confidence in the members and pushing for just some kind of acknowledgement or recognition that a conversation was needed because there was such a lack of transparency, no communication. And one thing that I learned from the ICs and social workers were that in the past, there would be regular meetings. There would be a, a bulletin that went out that outlined policy. The deputy chancellor and the directors were very hands-on in the past in terms of what the needs they're recognizing and in, in the programs were and how they were going to move forward. Uh, much of the CTLE those are the the professional development credits that the educators need, were often offered through the ICs and social workers. And all of that was just completely um, not happening at the beginning, so no communication. So we pushed for the union leadership to hold a meeting with the ICs and social workers where I'll be honest, it was a huge disappointment because uh, union leadership basically gave the platform to the deputy chancellor and her people to explain the vision. However, it was still very vague. And there's a recording of it. Um, it was still very vague, uh, just that, you know, change is hard. And those were the words, you know, I'm going through transition, people going through transitions, you know, things are hard and we're going to make it better. So, we'll have all these job posts. You can get a job if you decide in elementary school. Well, that just the only thing that served to do was agitate, agitate the folks, the members. And then we took it a step further, started organizing a letter to the deputy chancellor, the chancellor's office to please reconsider this decision of restructuring the DECE before, you know, like having any kind of conversation with the people in it who are actually working in the ground. And of course, that one ignored. So we organized a couple of town halls. And this is where site program directors, early childhood educators, IC social workers began to say publicly what was going on. This caught the ear of the media. We had an initial rally earlier in the fall, the one before the November one. And this is all to build an escalating campaign, right? Build awareness. And that's one thing in organizing people often, you know, don't realize that there's a lot of building leading towards a big action that's actually public. Um, bringing on what was happening with the site program directors, connecting the dots for people that, wow, this restructuring is actually dismantling systems that have been going on for a long time. There was a record number of central DOE employees who fled, citing toxic work environment, they were starting to really speak out once they saw that everyone else was like starting to speak up. And that organizing building led to the vote of no confidence. We were at city council hearings. We did a press, a virtual press conference all before this. And by that point, the union leadership was starting to take the lead of the ICs and social workers by that time. Now, I will say we still have not gotten information from the UFT leadership about the vote, like the data, Um, and as a result of that, they went and negotiated behind closed doors to determine that they're going to do a series of site visits so that the deputy chancellor can learn the role of the ICs and social workers from the people on the sites. There was an agreement. ICs and social workers literally worked through the December break to make these arrangements only to find out now that they're going back on that and that the deputy chancellor is deciding the sites and deciding the format of the meetings. And so there's some pushback happening back and forth. However, when we did come back from the break, because of all the public, right, um, I'll say it shaming and just exposing what's going on. The chancellor decided that the ICs and social workers would be reinstated until June, right? The end of the school year, that they would not have to be part of any restructuring until the end of the school year. Well, that's not good enough, and I'll leave it right now, but the organizing work is we're looking at, we have, now have a social media platform, the People's Early Childhood Education of New York City, on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, and um, working on a platform. And that will encompass what's happening about building voices. We show up at the panel for educational policy meetings and speak out people. Leaders have popped up from this um, group. You know, Deandra and Michelle and Lauren are a few of the leaders that have emerged amongst many. And so I think there's an awakening that's happening and we have to continue to find our voice, a collective voice around what people want as the vision for early childhood education in New York City. And it doesn't involve a deputy chancellor with ties to CUNY PDI and organizing private contracts, which the PEP has been voting on, right? Contracting out these positions in, you know, finding these jobs suddenly popping up. So one part of the work as well, I just wanna throw in, is that people are finding evidence of outsourcing of positions uh, with job descriptions, very, very similar, almost <laughs> identical to that of ICs. So um, the organizing work continues and we can talk more about that.
0: Michelle and Deandre, if you could tell us also um, your your comments and feelings about the organizing that's happened um, since um, you've come together.
3: I would say, um, the organizing has really brought everyone together, honestly. Um, it brought leaders closer to us. It brought social workers and ICs closer to each other. Um, it made us even more proactive. Like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, I didn't knew what PEP was and the city council um, meeting or the CEC, like none of that stuff was part of my world like at all, and um, not that I didn't think they were important, it was just not, it wasn't a radar um, in my world, but I saw the importance of it once I started organizing with Gia and, and, uh, and some members of, of, our, of the UFT union. Um, having our voices everywhere is essential. Being a part of the conversation that's taking place at all of these tables are essential. We're fighting that fight and we know it's the right fight. You know, like, um, you know, to quote John Lewis, we're, we're doing, we are doing, we're getting into good trouble because the trouble that we're getting into is the fight for the survival and the care of children of our communities. And, fa- and the mayor wants families to get back out of work. You know, I have a site that may close down and I'm hearing families saying to me, I have to decide whether I want to go back to work or stay home because I can't afford um, to pay for child care. But the the school and their community is there for them, but it might close down because
2: they're not getting funding. I think that this process, um, and honestly, this collective trauma has brought us closer together. Um, and one of the things that I, I've spoken to a lot of people about is it's not just about our jobs. And I think that that's what what the chancellor and what administration had focused on. Oh, well, it's, you know, you're still getting a paycheck. No, it, it's not about that. To me, this is an equity issue. Um, I, I don't understand how sorry. I get nervous. Um, to me, this is an equity issue. And to to not pay providers and expect them to do the work, to not consider the fact that some of the programs and some of the, the schools that we go into are incredibly high needs and they really need the extra support. They need the extra training. They need the, the extra collaboration. Um, it, is, it, it is really mind blowing to me. Um, I think that a lot of us, have stepped up in ways that we, we, like Deandra said, that we didn't really expect to. Um, myself included, I had never been to a PEP or CEC meeting before. Um, I've now spoken at, at both. Um, and I, I also have this conversation with my son, who's sitting right here. Um, <laughs> and so, hi. Um, because a lot of my after school time now is joining meetings and discussing. And I have to explain to him, you know that at his school, he's really lucky. He has an active PTA, and they are able to afford stuff that the schools that I support are not. Um, and and that's not okay. It's not okay that children aren't getting all the opportunities that that they should. Um, I, I think that it, I think that there's a push towards privatization and. Um, it has to be spoken about and it has to be spoken about loudly because I I think that um, honestly, in my personal opinion, it it feels like the administration wants programs to fail um, because that way they can say that it wasn't them who made the programs fail, the programs failed for whatever reason and now they can introduce their own ideas. which is fine if their ideas are really supporting children and families and they're supporting the community. Um, But at this point, they literally still have not been able to articulate a vision of what they expect for early childhood. It's been a year. Um, Pre-K for All was touted as a national model. And now one year in, it's in chaos. And, you know, Gia keeps saying dismantling, dismantling. And to me, that's that's a very polite way. I, I call it gutting because that's what it feels like. They're gutting our division. And, and for no reason other than they have something else that they don't even want to talk about. Um, it's frustrating. And, uh, you know, a lot of us have Decided to speak out, and I'm so proud of us. I, I know that it's it's not something that that I think we we intended to do, but like Deandra said, we feel like it's good trouble, and and we're willing to take the risk to to support, you know, our colleagues and the families and the children and the daycare providers and CBOs and programs that aren't being heard and aren't being supported.
1: In- I say one thing from providers about this, because I think I've never known as many providers as I do now. Um, I've never been able to support as many of us. I thought we were in it, you know, I can't help but think there are moments you wake up and go, am I just doing it wrong? Like did I, am I not figuring this out right? And then you start to talk to other people who are going through the same experience and you realize, oh, this is actually across the whole industry. It's not personal. It's not like it's just happening in your neighborhood or just in your borough. And so being able to build a network of directors who were all saying to each other, how did you manage this? Or how did you do that? It's like for the first time in some ways, I feel like the early childhood community, even with our IC and social workers, all of us are on the same page we're all trying to do the same work in a way that i i don't know that i had experienced previously for myself of oh i'm fighting for something for my kids but i'm also fighting for something for our community and our city with other people who have the same vision of what our families need so i am grateful for the work we've been able to do to organize Um, and, and I think it's sad we have to spend that time in a certain sense. You want it just to happen and for the city to get it. And I think as a community, we're growing stronger to really say, this is not okay.
0: And as we wrap up, I would love to talk about one or two next steps that you feel need to be taken here. We'll do a, a quick round here. Gia, Lauren, Michelle, and DeAndra.
4: Yeah, next steps is we've heard all the talking points coming from the DECE, false rhetoric. It's important for us to develop a collective vision for the kind of early childhood education we need and put that platform out. We've been on defense and now we need to be on offense in terms of lifting up what universal childcare and education looks like in the city. Um, that's one and pushing that message through in our communities because that's where the voices need to get lifted up. So that's where the work is.
3: I think there are
1: two things. I think there are two things that uh, need to be done right away. One is providers have to get paid. It's not a time to say, you know, we have to look at things and we have to do accounting and we have to do audits. No, the providers have to get paid their contracts, and that has to be done immediately so that we don't lose child care in the city of New York. And then the second thing that needs to get done, once providers have the resources to continue to provide services, is we need an actual, as Gia was saying, there needs to be a coming together for the vision of early childhood, where the providers who are providing, the ICs who are on the ground, the social workers who are on the ground, and the people in central and OAs and, and the mayor's office. We need to sit together and there needs to be learning from the experience on the ground, not from people who just started their position two weeks ago, but from people who've been in the system for years so that the systems and communications can work together to really keep and grow a model of 3K and pre-K for the rest of the country. New York City should be that model because we are the largest and we have the most varied needs. And together we can do that if there is that transparency to discussion and opportunity.
2: Honestly, I don't think I could say it any better, Lauren. I echo what she said completely. Providers absolutely need to be paid completely and on time. And, um, and there has to be a, a meeting of both administration and the people that have the institutional knowledge about the program. It became a national model for a reason, and that's because of the hard work that everybody put in. And to throw the baby out with the bathwater makes absolutely no sense. I
3: agree with all that was said, um, (laughs) before, um, definitely a conversation needs to be had and not the, um, you know, posing for press, um, kind of conversation where the cameras are there and everybody's buddy, buddy, and everybody's saying the right thing. We need to have like like a deep dive conversation and everyone needs to be at the table not some not a few everyone because you can't make a decision about early childhood without including the people that are you know that are on the ground and also educating the community about the support that early childhood receives and stop dismantling or, sorry, gutting um, early childhood support. I, I have no idea why someone from CUNY PDI is doing the same exact work that ICs and social workers are currently doing. And we are spending millions of dollars outside of the DOE, and you have that right here within the DOE. And also a next step, and this is my last piece. Um, we send those excess letters and reinstate all ICs and social workers.
0: Thank you, Deandra. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Gia, for being champions and courageous today in telling your stories. This is a story that needs to be told, and I think we've told it.
1: Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. so. Much. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel.
0: That's all we have time for today. I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank Gia Lee, DeAndra, Michelle, and Lauren. Please consider becoming a member of WBAI as a special supporter of our show, Talk Out of School. Call 212-209-2950. That number is 212-209-2950 to make a donation. We need the support of people like you to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations here in New York City that doesn't run ads. There is no other show that tells about what is happening in our public schools and public education like Talk Out of School. And so please consider to make a donation. Also, you can make that donation at WBAI.org. Until next time, remember Tribe of Love. Love always wins.
1: Up in the morning and out to school.
0: The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical math.